Twitter head Elon Musk meets with civil rights leaders who pressured him to disallow many users who've been banned from the platform from returning. Also to give staffers tools to bolster the site's election integrity. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, November 3rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, as a major battle looms, thousands of Ukrainians are fleeing the port city of Kherson. Now occupying Russian troops are cracking down on the dissidents who remain. If you have a patriotic tattoo, it's 90% likely you're going to be detained. We'll speak with some of the residents who fled. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Germany, where G7 foreign ministers are meeting Thursday and Friday on the agenda, the war in Ukraine and in China. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street and the forecast are all coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The prosecution's rested its case against Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and four associates in their federal trial over their role in the U.S. Capitol insurrection last year. Jurors will now hear from the defense, which is expected to allow Rhodes to take the witness stand in his own defense against a charge of seditious conspiracy. Rhodes' attorneys have said they'll focus on their client's belief that then-President Donald Trump was going to invoke the Insurrection Act. Yesterday, jurors heard a recording days after the insurrection in which Rhodes is heard expressing frustration. There wasn't a more forceful response during the siege. He also is heard saying he'd hang House Speaker Pelosi from the lamppost. There's a heightened level of alert over political violence in the run-up to the final day of voting in midterm elections after the attack last Friday on Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband at their San Francisco home. One prominent member of the U.S. House who's on the bipartisan select committee investigating the January 6th riot is seeking answers from U.S. Capitol Police. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports. House Administration Committee Chairwoman Zoe Lofgren sent Capitol Police a five-page letter asking for more information regarding the agency's role in responding to the attack. Lofgren wants to know why additional steps were not taken to secure the safety of Pelosi and her family. Capitol Police have said the agency had access to cameras across the country tied to Congress members' security, including for Pelosi's San Francisco home, but those were not being monitored at the time of the attack. However, police said they saw law enforcement activity later and their officers responded to the scene to aid the investigation. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Washington. Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid's conceding election defeat. NPR's Daniel Estrin says Benjamin Netanyahu's returning to office just one year after he was unseated. Lapid called Netanyahu and congratulated him on his victory. Lapid's office said he instructed his staff to prepare an organized transition of power. With the final votes counted, Netanyahu's right-wing party and his ultra-Orthodox and far-right allies have clinched a parliamentary majority of 64 seats in the 120-seat parliament. It's a major blow to the Jewish left-wing in Israel. For right-wing Netanyahu, it's a stunning comeback for a man who was already the country's longest-serving prime minister and was chased from power last year amid corruption charges. The first world leader to congratulate Netanyahu was Hungary's autocratic leader, Viktor Orban. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre confirms U.S. officials have made contact with Brittany Griner, the basketball star in prison in Russia. The State Department just confirmed that U.S. Embassy officials in Moscow were able to visit Brittany Griner today. We are told she is doing as well as can be expected under the circumstances. Reiner's been in jail since her arrest in February on cannabis possession charges. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A $3.7 billion economic development bill is now on Governor Charlie Baker's desk. The governor says he's frustrated the package does not contain permanent tax cuts that he proposed. The House and Senate had agreed to the cuts before it was learned the state had to return $3 billion to taxpayers under a law that was approved decades ago. Another item dropped in the bill would have reinstated happy hours. Cape and Island Senator Julian Sears says he wanted to leave it up to the cities and towns to decide if they wanted to allow happy hour once again. Particularly folks who are looking to revitalize their downtowns, that happy hour could be a tool that's useful for a certain community. The way that we structured this is we provided a happy hour as a local option, right? So we understand that happy hour may not be a fit for all communities. Happy Hour was outlawed in Massachusetts almost 40 years ago as a way to combat drunk driving. A federal jury is convicting the former head of the Massachusetts State Police Union and a lobbyist of a kickback scheme. Federal prosecutors were able to prove to jurors that Dana Pullman took kickbacks from union lobbyist Ann Lynch and diverted thousands of dollars from the union for personal expenses between 2012 and 2018. Classes will resume at Brookline High tomorrow. Students were evacuated this morning and the building was closed for the remainder of the day after a chemical irritant sent two students and two staff members to the hospital. The injuries are not described as serious. The health department has declared the building safe. And investigators are providing new details on the person of interest connected to the woman once known as the Lady of the Dunes. Authorities this week identified the remains of Ruth Marie Terry that were discovered in the dunes of Provincetown in 1974. Inve- investigators think Guy Rockwell Muldaven married the victim just a few months before her body was found. He was a suspect in the death of his previous wife and a stepdaughter. Muldaven died in 2002. 64 degrees, pretty beautiful out there today. Clear skies tonight, turning chilly though, falling to the mid-40s. For tomorrow, more sunshine and unseasonably warm could reach the low 70s tomorrow. 64 degrees now in Boston at 406. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The spread of misinformation is still a top concern in this final stretch of the 2022 midterm elections. So where does one influential platform, Twitter, now stand on those concerns? This week, seven civil rights leaders got on a conference call with Twitter's new CEO, Elon Musk, to try to find out. He is facing increasing pressure as the company has acknowledged a surge in hate speech on the platform. CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, was on that call with Musk on Tuesday, and he joins me now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So as I understand, Musk was the only Twitter leader on this call What is the top line on what you all heard from him? Well, first of all, just to give you some context, this was members of the Stop Hate for Profit Coalition, a group of civil rights leaders who came together in 2020 after the surge of hate speech, racism, and anti-Semitism on Facebook that was able to wring over a period of months a series of concessions from the company. We've spoken out about YouTube and Twitter in the past. We came together to meet with Elon Musk to understand his vision for the platform and share some specific concerns. I think the top line on the meeting was, to be honest with you, 
as always is the case, you know, words matter, but actions matter much more. And yet what we heard was very encouraging. He listened, he processed, and he responded with some very specific commitments that he then tweeted out later that evening, suggesting to us that he plans on following through. And we should just acknowledge here that most of the world is not on this platform, is not on Twitter. So why is it so important to you and the other members of this coalition to get these assurances, to have these conversations with Elon Musk on how the platform is used moving forward? Well, look, already since it was announced he would be buying the platform, we've seen an uptick in extremist activity, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia. And we know advertisers share our concerns as well. And so we wanted to express our, our issues and to hear from him, but not just hear, we'll watch him, will he do it? Putting it in writing on Twitter somewhat binds Elon Musk, I think, to live up to his own words. And he said specific things about not replatforming anyone until there's a clear and transparent process, people who've been kicked off the platform, about maintaining a, a commitment with information, with infrastructure and resources to enforce election disinformation and maintain the integrity of elections. And finally, to adopt and create a content moderation council, including representatives of groups like ours who have faced hateful violence in the past. You mentioned replatforming, so I'd like to ask you about one particular user, former President Donald Trump, who was kicked off of Twitter in 2021, shortly after the January 6th attack on the Capitol for tweets that violated Twitter's glorification of violence policy. Did the possibility of allowing Trump back on Twitter come up in your conversation? Trump's name was not mentioned. He actually, I think his name was mentioned. We did not ask whether he would be replatformed. But Elon did agree not to allow anyone, which would include President Trump, who was deplatformed for violating Twitter rules or inciting violence back on the platform, regardless of their political stature, until there is a transparent process with clear rules and until after the election results are certified. That struck all of us as an important win. I want to step back here for a moment because, of course, this is not just about Twitter. Misinformation and hate speech is on the rise across our country right now. And you have said, quote, a collapse of our democracy is entirely possible if we do not take the necessary steps to prevent it. Jonathan, what do those steps look like to you? Well, first and foremost, I think social media has been a super spreader of this disinformation hate, to your point, beyond Twitter. We need government intervention, legislative reform, specifically the exemption provided by 230, which has allowed conspiracy theories and incitement and hate to flourish on these platforms. Once and for all, that needs to go away. So Section 230 reform. Number two, I really think we need to look at some of the, the bare infrastructure of democracy to make sure that election integrity is maintained, that people have access to the ballot box, regardless of their economic class or their social stature. That's incredibly important as well. And number three, I think we need other you know, reforms in Washington. We have a system which is polarized at a level at the ADL we have not seen in any point in our memory. After 110 years of fighting hate, I'm afraid we're at a precipice that if we don't act now, indeed, it could be too late. That was CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for having me. 
Now to a looming battle in southern Ukraine that could change the trajectory of the war. It's a fight that U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said today the Ukrainians could win. It is for the city of Kherson, the first major city taken by Russia in the invasion. Most of its residents have fled. Government offices have been cleared. Banks are closed. Even the officials installed by Moscow have now fled. Russian forces have cut off most communications, making it tough to know precisely what is happening inside. So NPR's Franco Ordonez traveled to the nearby city of Zaporizhia to meet with families who were fleeing. The conditions of the cars underline where they're coming from. Doors peppered with bullet holes, windows shattered from falling shrapnel, lots of plastic and tape. Passengers pour out, emotionally wrecked and physically exhausted. I still, I still can't believe that I left there. Victor pulls a red suitcase out of the trunk of a black car. He doesn't care that the clothes inside are the only possessions he and his wife still have left. They made it out. The madness. His wife, Nadia, says it's difficult to comprehend the last few weeks. The constant shelling, the dead bodies, the fear. I never saw such a Gestapo in my life. They executed a whole street. They killed a nine-year-old girl. NPR could not verify her claims. But still shaking, her eyes dart throughout the parking lot as Ukrainian officers check their passports and take photos. She asked that her last name not be used to protect loved ones still in her song. I can't believe I'm here in Ukraine. It will take time to understand and get used to it somehow. A man who asked to be called Artyom volunteers at a shelter in the city of Zaporizhia. It's a shelter for Kherson evacuees like himself. He's worried about his pregnant wife and her family who were stuck in her song. Her mother didn't want to leave, so my wife went to speak with her and got stuck there. Artem and his wife talk whenever they can get a signal. She's four months pregnant, and she tells him when the baby kicks. This will be my first child, a girl, Eva. Artem and his wife fled her son in the spring, but she worried about her mother, so she went back. She needs to stay alive. God forbid something happens to her. You know the situation. Someone could fancy her. She stays home as much as she can, but she needs to sell her garden's potatoes and other vegetables at a local street market for money. She tells me, relax, don't worry, I understand, calm down, breathe, I'm fine. Before the war, Kherson was a city of just over 320,000 people. Its exiled deputy mayor, Roman Holovnia, estimates there are only about 50,000 left. He called some collaborators and said others are people who just can't leave. Many are older. Others have few resources. The situation is intense. He says they live in a constant state of fear that Russians will walk into their home, carjack them, or worse. If you have a patriotic tattoo, it's 90 percent likely you're going to be detained. Artyom says he and his wife generally try to keep their conversations light. They worry that Russians are listening in, but it's hard to ignore the shelling. It's scary, but they think it means the Ukrainians are getting closer. <laughs> you can see it on her face when our guys are hitting and the Russians are retreating. He just wants them to hurry up so he can get his wife and their baby to their six-month checkup. And that will be in Ukrainian-held territory. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, 
Zaporizhia, Ukraine. D.H. Pellegrow, the longtime drummer for the iconic punk band Dead Kennedys, has died at the age of 63. His frantic, hardcore drumming set the pace for the band's boundary-pushing lyrics and performances. Born Darren Henley in St. Louis, Missouri, Pellegrow moved to San Francisco to join the punk music scene. After hearing Dead Kennedys play, he auditioned to be their next drummer. Pellegrow brought fresh energy to the band's music, and despite the music's aggressive formula, Pellegrow was a warm, easygoing person. We don't want people coming down to make trouble. We are pretty anti-violent. Pellegrow was also one of the few black punk musicians early on, and he spoke openly about his experiences with racism when the band toured. NPR Music's Lars Gottrich says Pellegrow helped set the bar for the hardcore music scene's beat. He had the stamina to blast through these 90-second songs, but he also had soul. I mean, just listen to the song I Spy, which Pellegrow wrote. It swings at first. But then just as the song barrels into a surf punk chaos and everything feels like it's going to topple over, Polegro keeps everything steady. His precision and innovation would become the backbone of American hardcore. D.H. Pellegro was 63 years old. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, former military members vetting the vote. On Wall Street, stocks closed lower for fourth day today. The Dow dropped nearly a half percent, 146 points, to finish the day at 32,001. S&P gave up just over 1 percent to finish at 3720. The Nasdaq fell one and three quarters percent to end the day at 10,345. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6:30. Cambridge-based drug maker Moderna says it could have a vaccine for the highly infectious respiratory infection RSV by next year. Moderna says it expects to have the data from its Phase 3 trial by this winter and could launch its vaccine by next fall. RSV is spreading at an unusually high level among children. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include BU's Metropolitan College, offering the part-time Master's in Computer Information Systems, gain competitive skills in areas such as computer networks, cybersecurity, data analytics, health informatics, web application development, and more. For more information, visit bu.edu slash met. Sunshine through the rest of the afternoon and the evening. Starlit skies tonight, chilly again. Temperatures in the mid-40s. We've got a string of sunny and milder days coming up tomorrow, about 72, some strong winds. And then sunshine, warmer for Saturday and Sunday, could hit the mid-70s. WBUR supporters include Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com.
Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about all the day's news. 64 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Japaigo, part of Johns Hopkins and dedicated to saving lives, improving health, and transforming the future of women. Their name is challenging, but so is their work at jhpiego.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The attack last week on Paul Pelosi, husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, is being seen as a warning of rising political violence in this midterm election season. For example, what used to be a quiet, even boring job, being a volunteer poll worker, that now looks stressful in many states. So among the groups stepping up is one called Vet the Vote. With outreach through the Department of Veterans Affairs, the group has recruited 63,000 military veterans to serve as impartial election workers, as NPR's Quill Lawrence reports. There's a high school marching band practicing in Virginia Beach, Virginia, next to a community rec center, which doubles as a polling station. Early voting was already underway last week. Yeah, yeah, it was really, really good. With several military bases nearby, the other sound that you hear is jet noise. That's the sound of freedom. That's Ellen Gustafson, the co-founder of Vet the Vote, a campaign to fix the nationwide shortage of poll workers by recruiting veterans and military families. Gustafson is a Navy spouse. She says the military community is used to putting aside personal politics and working together. Military spouses that I follow on Instagram and follow me on Instagram, and there's a lot of stuff that people say that I just wouldn't agree with politically, but I will tell you they are my biggest source of support. This is not my enemy, for God's sake. This is the person who I call when I need someone to pick up my kid. She's got three young kids and her husband just deployed, so she's not joking. Gustafson says Vet the Vote is a way for veterans to use their experience to keep serving. In this case, their experience at following a whole mess of rules and procedures. You know, the military and voting, <laughs> like when you have way too many people working in one big institution to do their very specific job, that's kind of great for voting and for keeping Navy ships afloat. Veterans have signed up for a lot of reasons. Andrew Turner, an Iraq vet in Michigan, says it was the plot to kidnap his governor, Gretchen Whitmer. It's scary. It's, you know, seeing Governor Whitmer be targeted for kidnapping with that and then with January 6th and everything else, it's been very troubling to me because I'm seeing something that I didn't think would happen here in the U.S. Turner says he's seen political violence overseas and wants to do whatever he can to shore up democracy at home. In Northern California, Donnie Hazeltine agrees. He served as a Marine for 22 years. And I think from someone who actually was in Iraq during uh, Iraqi elections, it's hard to think that you come back to the United States and you don't have a poll worker because someone's threatening one of those poll workers. And it made me think that, hey, I, I've got no problem dealing with that, and maybe there's another way I can continue my service and give back to, to my country. 
Jerry Bell served in naval intelligence for 20 years. She's already worked one election in 2020 near her home in Calvert County, Maryland. The election administrator pairs up a Republican with a Democrat. And my partner in the other political party and I kind of looked at each other sideways for about 30 seconds. And then we started processing ballots and it just didn't matter. We just had a job to do. And it really was the most nonpartisan thing I've done since I left the Navy and that was a pleasure. Some veterans joined the campaign because they themselves have questions about the process. Uh, my name is Will Doyle and I served from 2002 to 2017. Deployed on Reagan and, and Bush. Those are aircraft carriers he was on, named for Presidents Reagan and George Bush Sr. But Doyle says he never voted for president until he got out of the military. I didn't want to have an opinion one way or the other about the commander in chief. The bias if my party that I voted for wasn't elected. I met Doyle back in Virginia Beach, listened for the jet noise. He says he's not totally confident that the election in 2020 was free and fair. I'd like to believe that our democracy is protected and that the rights of the people are protected and our vote, each and every vote is counted. But sometimes you see the media is pointing in other directions. Ellen Gustafson with Vet the Vote welcomes this kind of skeptic. She's confident that when he learns how polling stations are run, he'll reassure himself and others. We have recruited 63,000 veterans and military family members to be poll workers all across this country. There were 12 in my zip code alone that I, that I saw in our database. So when you go to vote, you can trust that that population is there and that they know how to do the right thing. Both Gustafson and Doyle will sit this election out, though. Their polling stations had too many volunteers. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, Virginia Beach. President Biden and China's leader Xi Jinping are supposed to meet in person at the G20 summit in Indonesia this month. But as tensions grow, the two countries' militaries are preparing for the worst, potential conflict with each other. So the U.S. Army is retooling itself in a large and key strategic region, the Indo-Pacific. NPR's Emily Fang reports. Charles Flynn, commanding general of the United States Army Pacific, has been following China closely for a while. He's covered the Indo-Pacific region that encompasses a huge portion of the world from Mongolia all the way to Australia since 2014, with a focus on China. What I have witnessed uh, them doing is increasingly alarming and irresponsible. Specifically, he says, live-fire military drills China conducted around Taiwan earlier this summer. China said it was retaliation for a U.S. government visit led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taipei. But this week, it's General Flynn overseeing military training exercises at a new army center in tropical Hawaii. And these exercises are a big step for an army that hasn't fought much in the Pacific lately. Instead, the focus for the last two decades was Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, for a long time, particularly due to sort of the conveyor belt of uh, providing forces to the Middle East over the last 20 years, we were sending forces from Hawaii and Alaska, tactical forces, back to the training centers in the continental United States. But the time it takes to ship all your equipment back there, the time it takes to move all your soldiers back there, 
you know, just really, it doesn't make sense to do that any longer. Which is why the Army set up a permanent training center on the islands of Hawaii, because now the focus is back on threats in the Pacific, including from China. We are training in the environment and the conditions that more closely replicate where we have to operate and potentially fight. And it's not just the U.S. which is jittery about China and its threats against Taiwan. Thailand, the Philippines, and Indonesia sent infantry units to train with U.S. forces this week. Nine other countries, including Australia and Japan, are in Hawaii observing the American soldiers. Some are planning similar drills or even building their own training centers to work with the U.S. The idea is that by training together, the U.S. and its allies can hopefully deter China and prevent conflict. Emily Fang, NPR News, Oahu, Hawaii. The U.S. has seen a rising wave of domestic extremism, and security experts are warning of potential violence around the midterm elections. You have to imagine that the, the average local county election official isn't walking around with something like the Secret Service or Marshal Service protecting them. They, they don't have any protection at all. And so if an individual sets their sights on one of these targets, there's not a lot stopping them. More today on NPR's daily podcast, Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, CEOs of food companies are making regenerative agriculture commitments, but will the firms follow through? That story's still ahead on WBUR. Boston Bruins are on the road to play the New York Rangers tonight. The Bruins are 9-1 and one on the season. The Rangers are 6-3-2. and two. The Celtics have the night off. Stakes are high in the midterm elections. There are key issues and ideas on the ballot, and the very act of voting has become politicized. Start every day here at WBUR for election news. Listen to 90.9 WBUR once again tomorrow. In the forecast, bright and beautiful today, mostly clear skies falling to about 47 degrees. The sunshine should return tomorrow, breaking into the low 70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tapas 529 in Melrose. Spanish and Mediterranean small plates with a modern twist. Dinner Tuesday through Sunday, lunch and brunch on weekends. Private parties welcome. And Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. Behind the ships and the trucks and the trains that keep stuff moving through this economy are the businesses that keep those machines going. Take locomotives. We are the only qualified vendor to do this repair. So if any GE engine fails around the world, we either have to go do it or it's got to come to us. I'm Kai Rizdal. Behind the scenes of keeping the trains running on time next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Department of Justice says federal prosecutors should use all available tools to hold prison workers accountable when they assault women behind bars. NPR's Carrie Johnson has more from a new internal report. 
Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco says DOJ is obligated to ensure the safety and well-being of people in its custody. Prosecutors have charged 45 federal prison workers with sexual assaults on women in custody over the past five years, but hundreds more tips about sexual abuse have flowed in during that time. Monaco's calling on prosecutors to use a new law that makes that abuse punishable with 15 years in prison. She's also calling for a national hotline to report assaults and changes to the ways that prisons investigate abuse. A new DOJ report says the department should consider creating a standalone team of investigators like a special victims unit. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Police in Pakistan say former Prime Minister Imran Khan's opposition convoy came under attack today by a gunman who opened fire on his campaign truck. NPR's Lauren Fryer says uh, Khan was shot in the leg and at least one person was killed in the ambush. Imran Khan's aides are calling this an assassination attempt. TV channels are showing video of an apparent gunman who says he acted alone. He was arrested at the scene. Pakistan's military, which Khan has accused of supporting his ouster, condemned the attack. The former prime minister has been on a long march to the capital, and several people have died along the way, including a journalist crushed to death in the crowd. That's NPR's Lauren Freyer. Khan is a former cricket star turned Islamist politician. Today's attack comes amid growing political and economic instability in Pakistan. On Wall Street, stocks finished lower again today. Tech shares were among the biggest drags on the market. Uh, the Nasdaq was down more than 1%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA says it's been able to hire more employees for its operations control center. The Federal Transit Administration reported earlier this year rider safety was in danger because dispatchers were shorthanded and being overworked. But MBTA rules still allow dispatchers to work far more than an average 40-hour work week. The issue came up at a meeting today between the T's safety chief, Ron Esther, and MBTA Board of Directors member Bob Butler. They can have a maximum of 24 hours of overtime. And that's a month? That's a week. week. Uh, 24 hours a week? Of overtime. Wow. The Federal Transit Administration says dispatchers can make dangerous mistakes when they're not properly rested. The $3.7 billion agreement passed in the legislature today is now on the governor's desk. The package does not contain permanent tax cuts that Governor Charlie Baker proposed. It also does not include a measure that would allow the state lottery to offer its games over the Internet. State Treasurer Deborah Goldberg lobbied for it. Goldberg says every state's online lottery presence generates more money than their counter-lottery sales. The Boston-based Conservation Law Foundation and other environmental groups are asking the federal government to implement emergency rules to protect North Atlantic right whales. The request comes about two weeks before the whales carving or make that calving season is to begin. The foundation's Erica Fuller says the expanding the area's speed restrictions and making them apply to more boats could cut down on the deaths of young whales and their mothers. We need to do more, and this feels like a reasonable ask of the shipping and the boating community to slow down during those times they know right whales are in the area. The New England Aquarium says only 340 North Atlantic right whales remain in the world. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waltham Open Studios. Learn about art making and visit more than 80 artists in four buildings on Moody Street in the heart of Waltham, November 5th and 6th.
Pretty glorious out there today. Clear skies tonight, turning chilly, falling to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sun's back. Temperatures hike to low 70s. Then Saturday and Sunday could make it to about 74 degrees. Sunny, dry, and breezy throughout the weekend. 64 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. G7 foreign ministers are meeting today and tomorrow in Germany. That country's foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, says Russia's war in Ukraine is high on the agenda. She says diplomats are worried about the coming winter as Russia bombs energy infrastructure. If this keeps going on, children will not only hide under their table because they hear the bomb attacks, but they are endangered of being frozen to death because they don't have any electricity and any heating anymore. The German foreign minister was speaking alongside Secretary of State Antony Blinken before the meetings got underway. NPR's Michelle Kellerman joins us now from Munster, Germany, where the G7 is gathering. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Juana. So, Michelle, nothing is accidental in diplomacy. So tell us, why did Germany pick Munster? The Germans picked this city in the west of the country because it has a very famous diplomatic history. Um, The Treaty of Westphalia was signed in Munster, ending the Thirty Years' War. We're talking about 1648. That was the year. So we're going way back in history here. Secretary Blinken said um, this treaty put in place some fundamental principles of international relations, principles that he says are actually being challenged by Russia in Ukraine today. And that is the territorial integrity and the sovereignty of nations. If we let that be challenged with impunity, then the foundations of the international order will start to erode and eventually crumble. And none of us can afford to let that happen. And uh, Foreign Minister Baerbach echoed that when she opened the G7 meeting in a room that she said represents peace and the rule of law. Now, this meeting comes as Germany's chancellor is preparing for a trip to China. There's also a big Chinese investment into the port in Hamburg. What are U.S. officials saying about that? Yeah, so the U.S. has been warning countries, including Germany, not to let China gain controlling interests in key sectors. Um, That was the case in that port in Hamburg that you mentioned. And officials do seem satisfied that a new deal on that gives China a smaller stake in the port. Um, The U.S. wants to make sure that all G7 countries are aligned on China, preventing China from gaining access to sensitive Western technology and making sure that there are more resilient supply chains. This is going to be some of the talk at a working dinner here in Munster, Germany. Um, Plus, there's Russia and the loose nuclear rhetoric. The U.S. wants to see China use its leverage with Moscow to ensure that Russia does not use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. What else can you tell us about what the agenda looks like moving forward? Yeah, so Iran is a major focus um, tomorrow. Annalena Baerbach, the German foreign minister, says she wants to make sure that the G7 leading democracies agree on ways to help the women who are protesting there in Iran. Take a listen. 
it's not only women, it's like the diversity of the Iran society is saying, well, this is uh, enough and we want to live in freedom like many other countries. So this is what we are doing here at G7, bringing together our support uh, for the people uh, of Iran. And Secretary Blinken added to that, he said one of the things that they're talking about is how to help make sure Iranians have the ability to communicate with each other and with the outside world. So that means getting internet technology to Iranians. Um, in addition to that meeting on Iran, there's also a meeting tomorrow on Africa. The West has been competing for influence with China in Africa, too, as well as with Russia. So there's just a lot on the plate here in Munster. NPR's Michelle Kellerman in Munster, Germany. Michelle, thank you. Thank you. Ahead of the International Climate Change Conference in Egypt next week, major food corporations today announced a plan to address their greenhouse gas emissions connected to agriculture supply chains. KCUR's Dana Cronin reports. The world's food system accounts for a third of global greenhouse gas emissions, and the private sector is a huge part of that, says Ricardo Salvador with the Union of Concerned Scientists. They're invested in the system which generates greenhouse gas emissions, and essentially they uh, are trapped by uh, you know, the need to continue to not only be profitable, but to grow their profits. A chunk of those emissions come from the farms that grow ingredients for these companies, including corn, potatoes, and rice. And a group of 12 mega food corporations, including Mars, PepsiCo, and McDonald's, are trying to reduce that footprint by paying farmers to farm more sustainably. Farmers like Will Cannon, who I talked to on the phone from the seat of his combine, harvesting his 1,000 acres of corn and soybeans near Prairie City, Iowa. You know, when push comes to shove, you know, part of being, part of being sustainable is, is you have to be economically sustainable, right? To sequester carbon on his farm, Cannon does things like plant cover crops, which trap carbon all winter long. He avoids tilling his soil as much, which keeps carbon in the ground. And the way he's made it economically sustainable is through food corporations, PepsiCo and Unilever, who are helping foot the bill for what's commonly called regenerative agriculture. That type of partnership could become more common as a coalition of major food companies plans to scale up the amount of regenerative farmland. Grant Reed is the outgoing CEO of Mars and heads this industry task force. If we do that, that will take 600 million tonnes of greenhouse gas out of the atmosphere. 600 million metric tonnes, by the way, is the equivalent to the annual emissions of 161 coal-fired power plants. It's not the first regenerative agriculture commitment we've seen from big food corporations. Last year, PepsiCo committed its entire global farming footprint, about 7 million acres, to more sustainable practices. So far, they've only tackled a few hundred thousand of those acres, though Chief Sustainability Officer Jim Andrew says that's to be expected in the first year. You're really building capabilities, you're building tools, you're building uh, a set of partners on a global basis. You know, these things don't happen overnight. And scaling that system across 12 different companies and supply chains won't be easy especially because no two supply chains are the same. What works for a rice farmer in India might not work for a corn farmer in Iowa, says Grant Reed. There's no one size fits all. all right? So there's not one crop, one company, one 
country that's identical. So you can't be too prescriptive. And the plan's lack of precision could make it difficult to track progress, especially when there's no real standardized definition of regenerative agriculture. There's no step-by-step -step guide or menu of requirements for regenerative farming, which can make it hard to verify that these corporate commitments are really helping combat climate change, says Ricardo Salvador with the Union of Concerned Scientists. In addition to being verifiable, it needs to be permanent, because if it's not permanent, then in a since it's not really helping us with climate change. In other words, we need more farmers like Will Cannon to really make a dent in climate change. For NPR News, I'm Dana Cronin. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. You may not notice it when you pay your utility bill for gas, but for some, those bills have a hidden fossil fuel subsidy. It helps pay to link new homes to the natural gas system. And that is something client scientists worry could lock in decades of climate warming emissions. California recently scrapped these incentives, and now Colorado is considering a similar move. Colorado Public Radio's Sam Brash reports. Thank you so much for showing up for a tour. About a dozen people are packed into a trailer at a construction site in Fort Collins, Colorado. They grab hard hats along with free coffee and donuts to tour a brand new neighborhood. It's a very thoughtfully and intentionally designed community. Stephen Myers is the CEO of Thrive Home Builders, which sells all-electric homes with zero need for natural gas. Whether it's cooking, whether it's heating, cooling, Everything in that home is going to run off of electricity. We walk out of the trailer. Concrete foundations stretch towards the Rocky Mountain foothills, some topped with wood frames and roofs. Climate groups love electric homes because they can draw their power from clean energy sources, like wind and solar, and they have a plan to nudge developers to build more of them. In the first house, I break that plan down for Beth and Lee Zimmerman, who are shopping for a new home. So we retired a year ago. We moved to Fort Collins to be closer to our grandchildren. Okay, so let me tell you what my story is about. This takes a second to explain, so bear with me. Like a lot of people, I get a gas bill. It includes what I pay for energy, then all these little like fees and charges. Part of that money finances a discount to connect new homes to the gas system. Colorado regulators have proposed becoming the second state to ditch those subsidies after California. The Zimmermans, they like the idea of pushing more developers to skip natural gas. With global warming, climate change, we need to, you know, be careful uh, you know, how we proceed with future builds. And I think this company addresses that quite nicely. But some big utilities are cautious. Robert Kenny leads Excel Energy Colorado, the state's largest gas and power company. He says natural gas, it isn't going away. Our customers are still demanding it and still want it. People use it for cooking. It's also consistent with spurring economic development. 
Excel Energy has joined home builders to defend the subsidy. Kenny insists that doesn't conflict with his company's ambitious climate goals. That's because it's investing in green technologies, like mixing hydrogen into the gas supply. On that point, climate advocates are skeptical. We know that the most cost-effective way to eliminate emissions from buildings is through investing in efficient all-electric appliances. Kiki Velez is a green building advocate for the Natural Resources Defense Council. She says the subsidy is a terrible climate policy and adds to skyrocketing energy bills. It's bad for customers. It's costing them money. And it's also completely contradictory to our climate goals. California estimates eliminating the subsidy will save ratepayers there more than $160 million each year. Colorado gas customers could save more than $10 million annually if regulators go through with their proposal later this month. Back in the trailer, I check in with Gene Myers, the chief sustainability officer for Thrive Home Builders. He doesn't have a prediction on the upcoming decision. I don't know what happens in the next few months uh, with the PUC, but I think long term, The building industry is almost 40% of emissions. And so to me, it's inevitable. New York City and Berkeley, California have already banned new gas hookups. He expects that trend will grow, and he thinks his company should learn to build all electric homes now before it's required. For NPR News, I'm Sam Brash in Denver. And you're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. In the forecast, starlit skies tonight, chilly once again, temperatures in the mid-40s. We've got a bunch of sunny and milder days coming up. Tomorrow should be sunny, some strong winds around, highs about 72. Then for the weekend, looking lovely. Sunny again, both Saturday and Sunday, creeping all the way to about 74. 64 degrees now in Boston at 448. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Hanlon Hyden Society. With Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall. HandelandHyden.org. Here's a way to get out of some yard work. The state wants people to consider composting leaves instead of raking them. The Department of Environmental Protection's Janice Paré says decomposed leaves are good for the soil. One thing you can do is mow over the leaves to break them down. And then you can, if you have like a bag on your mower, if you want to rake it up, use the shredded leaves to mulch in your garden around your shrubs and trees. Paré also recommends putting leaves on top of garden beds to winterize bulbs. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you have been following the headlines out of Haiti recently, you'll know they have made for grim reading. They tell of crisis and collapse, of cholera, of gangs blocking the main seaport and fuel depots, of mountains of trash, of protesters in the streets. 
But behind all these headlines is, of course, a country rich with history, with natural beauty, with people trying to go about their daily lives. We wanted to better understand those lives. And to dig beneath the headlines in a country, I always find it helpful to read that country's writers. So we have invited the writer Miriam Chancy, who was born and raised in Port-au-Prince, to pull us together a reading list for Haiti. Miriam Chancy, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, we're going to get to the books, all the books. But before we do that, I mentioned Haiti's natural beauty. And mm -hmm. we hear so much about Haiti's troubles. I don't want to minimize them. But I wonder if you would start by painting us an alternate picture of what Haiti looks like, smells like, feels like to a child, to someone who loves it. Sure. Well, I was born in Port-au-Prince in the capital, and I was raised there uh, for some years and then back and forth between Port-au-Prince and uh, Canada. Um, and returns to Haiti were always filled with joy and table full of food staples that were native to the country. Um, and it's, it's a stunningly beautiful country in terms of the fauna, the flora. Uh, and the generosity of its people. And I think that's what struck me most as a child, uh, you know, talking to market vendors and hearing the roosters cry in the morning. Those are the sounds of, of my childhood. Hmm. Okay, the books. Um, you've brought us a list, and I will start with a history that you're recommending. This is called Silencing the Past. Tell us who it's by, why this is made your list. Yeah, this is by a Haitian writer, Michel Rolf Trouillot, uh, and Silencing the Past has become a cornerstone text in Haitian studies and also in post-colonial studies. It provides the historical overview that's really needed to understand how the success of the Haitian Revolution from 1791 to 1803 with the nation declared independent and founded January 1st, 1804. Uh, has been denied and distorted over time by intellectuals and international actors for ideological reasons, underpinned by political and economic interests, and the far-reaching ethical implications of denying the revolution. It was partly the basis for uh, filmmaker, also a Haitian filmmaker, Raoul Peck's HBO special of 2021, okay. Exterminate All the Broods. So it's really uh, chief reading. Another book on your list, Beverly Bell's Fault Lines. This takes on more recent history, the aftermath of the 2010 earthquake. Tell me more. Yeah, absolutely. Beverly Bell is an American activist. Uh, she was not there during the earthquake, but returned a few weeks later. And she interviewed uh, women, especially, and peasant people on the ground to try to get a sense of what their lives were like in the aftermath of the earthquake. And this is a book derived from a blog post that she kept at the time called Other Worlds Are Possible. And it really gives you a sense of what was happening on the ground and what people wanted for their own futures. I really highly recommend it. Let's do some fiction. If people know one Haitian fiction writer, it might well be Edwige Chantica. And of her books, though, you're suggesting a memoir titled Brother I I'm dying. Why? Yes, yes. Um, Brother, I'm dying is really uh, probably Dendika's most political work. And it was written in the aftermath of losing her uncle, who also raised her in Port-au-Prince before she left when she was 12 years old. And he unfortunately died at a detention center in Florida 
where there was some confusion about his visa. And so she undertakes to retrace his steps until his death and also to recount her childhood in Haiti and what culminated in his need to leave the country. Given what we saw last year in Del Rio, I think it's a really good text for readers to understand what has led up to the current crisis with Haitian migrants. Okay. So specifically, if you're, if you're curious about immigration policy and where that stands, I think so. that might be one to pick up. Um, let me turn you to new fiction. This is by another prominent Haitian writer, Ketley Mars. The title is I Am Alive. How does this speak to the current situation? Yeah, this is an interesting text. It's a novella. It's a quick read. It was recently translated by Nathan Dees. It tells the story of a middle-class Haitian family that appears to be unscathed by the earthquake until one member interned for 40 years because of mental illness just at the beginning of the Duvalier regime is released from an institution because of a fissure in the foundation of the house where he's uh, in turn caused by the earthquake and because of a case of cholera contracted by an occupant. So everyone is returned home because of his fear of contamination. So to me, the book's premise speaks to the current context of Haiti's fissured political foundation, you know, the breakdown of a social fabric and the specter of cholera is a contemporary consequence of failed international intervention, which we see resurging right now. Yeah, sadly, we see it back in the headlines. Okay, my turn. I have a nomination, which is your recent novel titled What Storm, What Thunder? This is 10 interlinked short stories about the lives Mm -hmm. of 10 people. It becomes a novel through, through the interlinking. Um, And this is you reckoning with the 2010 earthquake. What were you trying to capture about Haiti? Yeah, you know, this novel is a choral novel, and I intended to use all those narrative voices spanning three family units across generations to give readers a sense of what people on the ground went through. And also the fact that not every Haitian has the same Uh, you know, sense of what their future might be like. And so the novel aims to give a human face to the tragic consequences of the 2010 earthquake, both in terms of personal losses, material losses, and again, in terms of the vast failures of international aid, failures which we see persisting to this day. It's also, it's, uh, I loved your book, and it's Among other things, it was very funny. (laughs) We don't get to read a lot that's very funny coming out of Haiti. And I was so glad to see that side of the country captured. Yeah, well, you know, I don't want to speak for all Haitians, but I think Haitians have a very profound sense of humor in the face of calamity. It's one way that people survive. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your reading list to help us better understand the beautiful country where you were born. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. That is the Haitian-Canadian-American writer, Miriam Chancy. Her latest book, as you just heard, is What Storm, What Thunder. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mathnasium, 
committed to boosting students' confidence, critical thinking, and math grades and scores with in-person or online instruction. Each student follows a customized learning plan. More at mathnasium.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight, clear skies, temperatures in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, more sunshine should be unseasonably warm. Tomorrow, highs in the low 70s. And then for the weekend, sunny again should reach the mid-70s. 64 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, leading the way in elementary education since 1860. Grow today. Transform tomorrow. On the web at tchs.org. I'm midday host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A new poll shows that black voters among the least enthusiastic about the candidates in this year's midterms. It's clear to me that they don't have people of color advising them. They're assuming what we want, and we want the same things that other voters want. The effort to mobilize black voters coming up. It's Thursday, November 3rd, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Tesla's first European factory in Brandenburg, Germany, is facing scrutiny over its environmental impact since it opened in March. Brandenburg's in the midst of a historic drought. And a film claiming liberals are stuffing ballot boxes with fraudulent votes has been debunked. But some conservatives are mobilizing around the debunked claims made in the right-wing film 2,000 Mules. It's basically an endless template for taking a picture of someone or a video and saying that Oh, actually, what they're doing here is criminal. You can trust me on this. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is making a campaign swing through parts of the West today. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports with less than a week before the midterm elections, the president is seeking to energize voters in New Mexico. During a stop in Albuquerque, President Biden took aim at congressional Republicans who are challenging his administration's plans to extend student debt relief to millions of Americans. As soon as I announced my administration's plan for student debt, they started attacking it, even though I ran on it and everybody knew what I was going to do. The out, their outrage is just simply wrong. And I might add, very, I want to be too political here, but hypocritical. Biden's plan cancels up to $10,000 for most student loan borrowers and up to 20000 for those who received grants for low-income families. The White House says nearly 26 million Americans have so far applied for student loan forgiveness. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. 
Officials at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow say they were able to visit JLWNBA star Brittany Griner. The visit coming weeks after a Russian court rejected her appeal of her nine-year sentence for drug possession. According to a State Department spokesman, they say her tenacity and perseverance, even as the U.S. continues to push for her release, along with the release of Paul Whelan, was evident. Griner was jailed after vape cartridges containing cannabis oil were found in her luggage. Whelan is being held on what Russia says are espionage charges. Inspectors with the United Nations say there's no sign Ukraine is preparing weapons of mass destruction with nuclear waste. Russia has accused Ukraine of preparing so-called dirty bombs for weeks. From Kyiv, NPR's Yulian Haidar has more. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, inspected three locations where Russia claimed Ukraine was using nuclear waste to make weapons. In a media release, the agency said their inspectors had total access to Ukrainian nuclear facilities for days and, quote, did not find any indications of undeclared nuclear activities and materials at the locations. The IAEA also took environmental samples to make extra sure Ukraine isn't using or making dirty bombs. The agency's head, Rafael Grossi, says the results of those tests will be available soon. Russia accused Ukraine of wanting to detonate such a bomb on its own territory prompting fears Russia might use such a device against Ukraine. Yudan Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. The number of first-time unemployment claims fell slightly this week, though it appears for the most part despite a string of interest rate hikes by the Federal Reserve. The jobs market is mostly holding up. Labor Department says initial claims for benefits fell by 1,000 last week to 217,000, low by historical standards. The broader-based and more closely-watched jobs numbers for October are due out tomorrow. Stocks shuttered for a second straight session today on the recent Fed rate hikes. The Dow fell 146 points. The Nasdaq down 181 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The former president of the Massachusetts State Police Union will be sentenced in March after he was found guilty today of steering union work to a lobbyist in exchange for kickbacks. Jurors found Dana Pullman took more than $40,000 in kickbacks from a lobbyist, Ann Lynch, and took thousands of dollars from the union for personal expenses. Lynch was also convicted today for her part in the scheme. A $3.7 billion economic development bill is now on Governor Charlie Baker's desk. But as WBUR's Steve Brown tells us, the governor is expressing frustration the package does not contain some permanent tax cuts he had proposed earlier this year. Both the House and Senate had agreed to the cuts before it was learned the state had to return $3 billion to taxpayers under an almost forgotten law that was approved decades ago. Legislative leaders say they will look at the permanent cuts next session, but Governor Baker says the state has the money to implement them now at a time people could use the relief. I'm sorry it didn't make it through to the finals because um, with the cost of everything being what it is right now, that would have been a real benefit to a lot of those folks going forward. The governor says there's a lot of really important stuff in the bill, but he will need a chance to read it all before deciding what actions to take. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Brookline High School will reopen tomorrow. The school department says the building was evacuated this morning after a chemical irritant sent four people to the hospital. The injuries are not serious. Classes at Brookline High will resume tomorrow on the regular schedule. And tomorrow is the last day to vote early in person for next week's election, but some communities are limiting the hours or not offering the option. While early voting ends tomorrow, in-person absentee voting is available until noon on November 7th for people who qualify. Election day is Tuesday, November 8th, and the polls will be open from 7 a.m. until 8 p.m. 
64 degrees now in the Boston area should fall to the 40s overnight tonight and then rise to the 70s tomorrow, the mid-70s on Saturday and Sunday. We should have sunshine through the weekend. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Juana Summers. With just days to go before voting ends in the 2022 midterms, the latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll is showing some warning signs for Democrats, specifically when it comes to who's more keen to vote this year. Across age, race, income, gender, and other demographic groups, the survey shows Black voters are among the least enthusiastic to vote. And Black voters have historically voted for Democrats at a higher rate, with Black women among the most reliable Democratic voters. Now, we probably don't have to remind you, like with any voting bloc, there is still a vast array of diverging opinions, ideologies, and issues that are important among Black voters. It really comes down to abortion rights as well as voting rights. And that's why Al Hartley, a consultant in Smyrna, Georgia, says he's voting for Democrat Stacey Abrams in his state's closely watched race for governor and incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock for U.S. Senate. And Hartley says his experiences as a black man in this country should matter to politicians. Black men have a voice and have a perspective. You have to acknowledge where I am as a black person first. To me, that's what Warnock and Abrams really do. Relatability also matters to Donnell Brunson, a voter in Fairless Hills, Pennsylvania, another state with a high-profile Senate race. Fetterman is like an everyday-looking guy. I like my politicians more, you know, of the people. Even though he's supporting Democrat John Fetterman over Republican candidate Mehmet Oz, Brunson doesn't feel like politicians across the country understand what it takes to win support from more Black men. It's clear to me that they don't have people of color advising them. They're assuming what we want, and we want the same things that other voters want jobs, economics, education. Here to talk with us more about efforts to mobilize Black men in this year's midterms is Terrence Woodbury. He's a Democratic pollster and runs Hit Strategies, a polling firm that specializes in understanding young and minority voters. Terrence, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. So what are the historic trends you've seen with voter engagement among Black men? While there is a gender gap between Black men and Black women, it's important to point out that that gender gap is not unique to Black voters, that there is, in fact, a gender gap across all races, that white men and Black men, Latino men and AAPI men all vote a little more conservatively than their female counterparts. What's unique about Black male voters is that they were Democratic voters. They were supporting Barack Obama at 90 percent plus margins. And so now that we have seen that decline to 79% or 80%, it is in fact enough to make the margin of difference in states like Georgia and Wisconsin and North Carolina, where they have diverse candidates at the top of the ticket. 
Earlier, we heard from that Pennsylvania voter, Donnell Brunson, who said that so many candidates just make assumptions about what Black men want. Based on your data, what issues would you say candidates from either party should focus on to close that enthusiasm gap, particularly when it comes to Black men? What we found is that while this election cycle is being defined by Democrats, by the threat of the other side, the threat of losing democracy, that in fact, Black men are more motivated by the progress that Democrats have made. For example, when we asked in a recent poll, 73% of Black men said that their lives had not improved since Joe Biden became president. But when we gave them a list of progress, of policies, the child tax credit, the George Floyd executive order, the infrastructure bill, 90% of Black men said that that progress would improve their lives. And so it's clear to me that we're dealing with a messaging problem in connecting Black men to the progress that's being made. I want to push back a little bit here because I think that a number of the issues that you talked about, progress has a long way to go. You mentioned the executive order, which bans chokeholds and no-knock warrants, but Congress has failed to act significantly on police reform. There has been lagging progress on infrastructure I guess I would love to know your take on those who say there's still quite a long way to go. Absolutely. I was in focus groups in Michigan just a few weeks ago, and a Black man reminded me that policy is not progress. And there's a process in place to rip up lead pipes, but his baby is still drinking dirty water. Then that's not progress for him, right? When we needed Black men's votes, we delivered to the palm of their hand. Click here to access your mail-in ballot. Click here to find your polling place. Well, now they need to click here to see a map of those lead pipes and a, and the progress map of every pipe that's been replaced. They want to see and be a part of that progress in order to, to know that it's real and know that it's affecting the communities that they care about. I'm hoping you can talk to us a little bit about the more specific fears or even barriers for Black voters here. I, I find myself wondering how changes to voting laws, more recent reports of voter intimidation in some states, or other political factors come into play. Yeah, that that is what is the single greatest concern to me going into this election. It is the changing access to voting. Lines get longer. Being asked for more or different identification Every time they go vote, it is up to us to communicate. This is the goal of these efforts, not to disenfranchise the entire Black community, but to create just enough friction that just enough Black voters turn around and go home. You know, in a recent Black Track poll that we conducted just last week amongst 1,000 Black voters nationally, a majority, 51%, expect there to be political violence if Republicans lose this election. And a third, 33%, expect there to be political violence regardless of who wins this election. We cannot normalize that. Even the presence of ballistic uh, gear and weapons at polling places continues to introduce violence into our body politic. And that was just not a hallmark of our democracy and our peaceful transfer of power. The White House might also be hearing the alarm bells on Black voter turnout. President Biden made this appeal on Tuesday in a conversation with radio host Ricky Smiley, who has a majority Black audience. Vote, 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 vote. It's important. Democracy is literally at stake here. And Terrence, party leaders can urge voting all they want, but where do you see the onus on them, Democrats or Republicans, to be in the driver's seat here to push more engagement? Yeah, this is a part of where I, where I would argue that there's a 
that the White House has a messaging problem and not a governing problem. It's that they, they have to position black voters as the hero of that story. We didn't reduce child poverty in the black community because of the benevolence of Joe Biden or of Democrats. We did it because black voters won the U.S. Senate in Georgia. And so when, when we start to point to the progress, it's important that we give voters credit for that progress and make them the heroes of the story. Terrence Woodbury, Democratic pollster and CEO of Hit Strategies, thank you so much for your time and insights. Thank you so much. I'll come back anytime. In Uvalde, Texas, last night, the community marked Dia de los Muertos, the first one since a gunman killed 21 people at Robb Elementary School in May. As Texas Public Radio's Joey Palacios reports, families made sure all their loved ones' favorite foods and other things were there as they welcomed back their souls for the evening. Hillcrest Cemetery glowed with candlelit grave sites, flying paper lanterns, and twinkling lights strung across ornately decorated altars. Mariachis serenaded the family and grave of nine-year-old Jacqueline Gasseres, who was killed along with 18 of her classmates and two teachers. The myth, the legend, whatever, it's today they're here with us, here, dancing around, having a good time with, their, with our families. That's Jacqueline's father, Javier Gasseres. It's believed that during Dia de los Muertos, the souls of the departed return. Casares says his family has marked the holiday for several years, but this time is different. Having all these children and teachers here at the same time, you know, um, it hurts that much more. It means that much more. Um, so we want to celebrate their lives. Casares encouraged the families of the other Rob Elementary School victims to come together this night and build altars or ofrendas. Early in the evening, he called for 21 seconds of silence and read the names of all 21 people that were killed. Remember Uzziah Uzi Garcia, James Camelo Luemanos, Xavier Lopez, McKenna Lee Elrod. McKenna Elrod's mother, April, said her family doesn't normally celebrate Dia de los Muertos and this is their first altar. We've never set up one before. We're Baptist, but uh, we wanted to participate this year. She made sure McKenna's altar included her favorite dum-dum lollipops and spicy Takis chips. Which were her favorite, even though I hardly ever let her eat them because I'm like, they're terrible for you. <laughs> um, but they were her favorite. Nearby, Ana Rodriguez placed an urn with her daughter Maite's ashes on her ofrenda. There were also her daughter's signature green Converse sneakers with a black heart she'd drawn on the toe. Maite was identified by green Converse after the shooting. As the evening turned into night, hundreds of people stayed on in the cemetery in no hurry to leave the souls they came to celebrate. The mariachis continued to belt out ballads. Although Dila de los Muertos is a celebration of life, for Leticia Arismendi, the grandmother of nine-year-old Ellie Garcia. It also hurt because the lives of Ellie and the others lost some five months ago were cut so short. She didn't even get to be 10. And to me, it's brought a whole lot of emotion back. Arismendi says she knows that the dead coming back to visit Andilas Muertos is supposed to give you comfort. But to me, it, I've had a couple of days like rough days. As Arismendi and families continue to feel the pain, they know, at least, 
But the Dia de los Muertos tradition ensures that the memories of their loved ones, the robbed victims, we pass down from generation to generation. For NPR News, I'm Joy Palacios in Uvalde. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, a new documentary chronicles Mars exploration rovers, which were expected to be operational for 90 days, but were still roving 15 years later. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit working to build a just, sustainable future for people and the planet. Learn more at ceres.org slash WBUR. Stocks closed lower for a fourth day today. The Dow dropped nearly a half percent, 146 points, to finish the day at 32,001. S&P gave up just over 1 percent to finish at 3720. And the Nasdaq fell 1 and 3 quarters percent to end the day at 10,300. 45. City of Worcester is launching a study to look at the quality of life in its downtown business district. It wants recommendations on locations for permanent restrooms and how to keep sidewalks clean. City officials say addressing quality of life issues in downtown Worcester is paramount to attracting and retaining business. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a MedEx Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Mass Poetry, with the evening of Inspired Leaders, November 14th. Words that inspire, from Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer, with host Meghna Chakrabarty. MassPoetry.org. On the ballots across America Tuesday, 435 House seats, 35 Senate seats, 36 governorships, including in Massachusetts, and countless local positions, too. Keep listening to WBUR for the midterm updates you need and for live coverage Tuesday night. In the forecast, pretty lovely out there. Clear skies overnight tonight, turning chilly, falling to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sun's back. Temperatures hike to the low 70s. Saturday and Sunday could um, edge up to 74 degrees. Should be sunny and dry and breezy throughout the weekend. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. It takes a lot of water to make cars. From cooling heavy machinery to casting vehicle parts, the process can put a strain on local water systems. And in Germany, the expansion of a Tesla plant that is crucial to the company is now on pause as officials in the drought-stricken region try to find enough water. NPR's Bobby Allen reports from Brandenburg, just outside Berlin. Deep in the pine woods of eastern Germany is a massive Tesla factory. Its main facility is the size of 130 soccer fields. On a recent rainy day, I'm walking outside of the site's entrance with local resident Heidi Sharoda. She's an activist opposed to the plant's expansion. It is huge and it is the middle of forest and the middle of a water protection area in the middle of beautiful landscape. 
The biggest concern for Sheroda is how much water the Tesla plant is using. The company's contract with the German government says the factory is expected to consume the same amount of water every year as a city of more than 30,000 people. And here's the problem. Brandenburg has for years been in the grip of a drought. Wildfires have forced communities to evacuate. Farmers in the area have reported crop failure. It's already a lack of water, and Tesla will need a lot of water also with their extension plans. We do not have this water. The water issue has prompted lawsuits. But when Elon Musk was asked about the Tesla plant depleting local water resources, he was dismissive. No, no, this is completely wrong. It's like water everywhere here. Does this seem like a desert to you? <laughs> Mention Musk's remarks to Jörg Steinbeck and his eyes widen. Steinbeck is the finance minister for Brandenburg and one of the key figures who enticed Tesla to open a plant in Germany. In terms of the perception in the region, this was not 100% helpful. The water problem has been a huge headache for Steinbeck. He says the Tesla site is hoping to triple in size, and it can't do that by relying just on local water. If you would always use the water which is directly under your feet, you always would run into that problem whether it will be sufficient for public use as well as industrial use. Experts have said that if Tesla only sourced water locally, the water supply could eventually be depleted for local residents. Steinbeck says he is well aware. That's why we did the exploring. That's why we have drilled new wells, and now we have to install the pipe. New wells, new pipes, a lot of work to keep the factory's expansion going. For now, though, it's on hold. Building out the site in Germany is key to Tesla meeting its global demand for electric cars. It's not just water that's gotten in the way. Activists fighting Tesla on everything from tree preservation to saving sand lizards have delayed his timeline. It's got to the stage with the Tesla facility that these pressure groups are slowing the progress down. Could be a reason Musk recently said that the European plant is a money-burning furnace. That's Matthias Schmidt, a Berlin-based analyst who tracks electric cars in Europe. Right now, the factory is making around 2,000 cars a week in Germany. Musk hopes to bring that number up to 5,000, but hurdles keep getting in the way. It's probably a bit of a culture shock for Tesla, especially for their boss, their chief executive, Elon Musk. It's a matter of perspective. Musk complains about delays, but German business people talk about the relatively fast clip of the site's development as moving at Tesla speed. Back at his government office, Steinbeck notes that in surveys his department has done, the majority of residents in the Brandenburg area support the factory. But on Musk himself, like in America, people are divided. 50% see the messiah in Elon Musk and in Tesla, and for 50%, it's coming from the devil. Messiah or the devil? For local resident Sharoda, the case against the plant's expansion is simple. Just stop now to save the local water supply. As for Musk, well... Go away with your car. We do not want to have you here. Go to the Mars, for instance. This would be beautiful. Musk, for his part, thinks going to Mars would be beautiful, too. Bobby Allen, NPR News, Brandenburg. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Fidelity Wealth Management working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. In 2003, 
NASA sent two robots named Spirit and Opportunity to explore the surface of Mars. They were expected to have a lifespan of about 90 days. But as chronicled in the documentary Goodnight Oppie, Opportunity was still sending back pictures 15 years later. Critic Bob Mondello says the film seems calculated to make kids of all ages want to be space engineers. We're introduced to Oppie when she's on a roll, but has abruptly come to a stop. Hazard detected, she alerts her handlers on Earth. They get the message some six minutes later, look at the image she sent, and send back a few words that get her rolling again. You are safe to proceed, that's just your shadow. Now forgive me, but we are not even four minutes in, and already I'm hooked. Oppie and her twin sister Spirit look like real-life Wallies. They each have solar panel wings to provide power, metal arms to pick stuff up, a head that swivels with lenses spaced just like a person's eyes. They stand five foot two, and every morning NASA scientists rouse them from an overnight slumber. Our morning wake-up song is coming right up. Just as they did their human counterparts on manned space flights. The story of how Spirit and Oppie got designed. Our landing system had these big airbags that inflated. And then got to Mars. Atmospheric entry in three, two, one. Fills the first half of Goodnight Oppie, and it's crammed with brainstorming, troubleshooting, nail-biting over solar flares. It was slamming right in to our rover. Really bad for spacecraft. Now, software we put on board had been corrupted. Still, that's what reboots are for, right? And seven months and 300 million miles later, they get to the red planet, and the real fun begins. Filmmaker Ryan White has plenty of footage of NASA folks cheering, fretting, and most of all, explaining. The director also employed the digital wizards from Industrial Light and Magic to conjure the scenes on Mars that his crew can't shoot, the rovers for the first 90 days racing against time, as the scientists assume their solar panels will get so dusty they'll no longer provide power. And then we see these dust devils. Whirling mile-high tornadoes of dust. We'd taken this picture some weeks before, and it was getting really, really red and dusty. You barely see the solar panels anymore. But the morning after the dust devil, it's like somebody came along with Windex. And the solar panels were as clean as the day that we landed. An unexpected new lease on life repeated again and again as the rovers spend years exploring terrain NASA never expected them to see. Over time, it makes sense that the scientists and engineers would view their charges as almost human. One of the shoulder joints an opportunity's arm started getting arthritis. They birthed them, after all, and sent them out to fend for themselves, hoping they'd imparted the skills necessary to stay safe and to thrive. She noticed that she was sliding too much downhill and stopped just centimeters from the tip of her solar panel. We all had heart attacks, but her autonomy saved us. And we were so proud of our lucky rover. Watching Goodnight Oppie, you'll almost certainly feel that way too. Proud and fond of these intrepid explorers who may not have found life on Mars, but who ensured, for 15 years at least, that the Red Planet was lively. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Temperatures are on the way down. Should bottom out in the mid-40s overnight tonight. We could have a little fog tomorrow morning, but then sunshine for the most part. Highs about 70. Saturday, sunny again. Some real wind gusts. Highs about 73. The forecast for Sunday is now calling for some clouds during the first part of the day. Sunshine later, unseasonably mild with highs in the mid-70s. CDC issues a long-anticipated revamp of opioid guidelines that give clinicians more leeway in prescribing the medicines for pain. That story coming up on WBUR. And the Bruins are on the road to play the New York Rangers tonight, 7.30 start time. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. And Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at ExpressYourHealthMA.org. The Equal Protection Clause means that you can't discriminate based on race one way or the other, for good purpose or bad, but not in every context. And for more than 40 years, the Supreme Court says there's an exception for that, for educational diversity, so long as it's one factor among many in considering the whole student. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The group of seven foreign ministers, or G7, are meeting in Germany to figure out ways to help Ukraine get through the winter. As NPR's Michelle Kellerman tells us, China and Iran also top the agenda. Germany's foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, says Russia is trying to starve and freeze Ukrainians in areas Vladimir Putin can't conquer. President Putin is bombing not only villages and uh, cities, he's now also bombing power plants that uh, millions of uh, citizens need so heavily in their homes. She was speaking at the start of two days of talks with her G7 counterpart. She's also hosting a meeting on the protests in Iran and a dinner to coordinate a joint approach to China as Germany's chancellor prepares for a visit to Beijing. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Munster, Germany. In South Carolina, officials are investigating a rash of inmate deaths at a county jail. Scott Morgan of South Carolina Public Radio reports there have been two deaths in one week. Ronald Watkins died at the Spartanburg County Detention Center Tuesday. Four days earlier, John Miller died at the hospital after suffering a, quote, medical event at the county jail. Their deaths are among six in the region this year, and three among Spartanburg County inmates within a month. The death of Lavelle Lane at the county detention center in early October has generated protests from his family, including his father, Andy Reese. The sheriff, he ain't even stepped out and say, Mr. Reese, I'm sorry what happened to your son. Here go my condolences. I didn't hear nothing. The Spartanburg County Sheriff's Office says it will not comment until investigations are complete. For NPR News, I'm Scott Morgan in Rock Hill, South Carolina. New claims for unemployment benefits showed little change last week. Layoffs are still rare in the tight job market despite rising interest rates and persistent inflation. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A $3.7 billion economic development bill is now on Governor Charlie Baker's desk after the legislature signed it today. The governor says he's frustrated does not contain his proposed permanent tax cuts. The House and Senate had agreed to the cuts before it was learned the state had to return $3 billion to taxpayers under a law that was approved decades ago. 
Another item dropped in the bill would have reinstated happy hours. Cape and Island Senator Julian Sears says he wanted to leave it up to the cities and towns to decide if they want to allow happy hour once again. Particularly folks who are looking to revitalize their downtowns, that happy hour could be a tool that's useful for a certain community. The way that we structured this is we provided a happy hour as a local option, right? So we understand that happy hour may not be a fit for all communities. Happy Hour was outlawed in Massachusetts almost 40 years ago as a way to combat drunk driving. Investigators are providing new details on the person of interest connected to the woman, once known as the Lady of the Dunes. Authorities this week identified the remains of Ruth Marie Terry. They were discovered in the dunes of Provincetown in 1974. Investigators think Guy Rockwell Moldavan married the victim just a few months before her body was found. He was a suspect in the death of his previous wife and a stepdaughter. Moldavan died in 2002. A former eBay contractor was sentenced today for her role in a harassment campaign that targeted a native couple. Veronica Zia faces two years of probation. Prosecutors say she was part of a group that stalked and sent threatening messages to a husband and wife who published a newsletter that was critical of eBay. Several of Zia's co-conspirators have already been sentenced to prison terms. It's 534. WBUR supporters include Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. After a mighty fine day, we should have mostly clear skies tonight, falling to about 47 degrees. Some fog early tomorrow, then the sunshine should eventually return. Should be windy and warm, breaking into the low 70s. For the weekend, even warmer. Saturday and Sunday should make it to about 74 degrees. With sunshine Saturday, sunshine and clouds both on Sunday. It is 59 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Many doctors in the U.S. are uneasy when it comes to prescribing opioids, considering the risks of addiction and overdose. But opioids are necessary to treat some kinds of pain. And today, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention came out with new guidelines on when and how the drug should be prescribed. NPR health reporter Will Stone has been studying these new guidelines. Hey there, Will. Hi, Mary Louise. Um, Before we get into the details of what they are, what they say, why did the CDC put them out today? Yeah, well, pain remains a big problem. Uh, Estimates are about one in five people in the U.S. experience chronic pain. And the evidence on pain has evolved since the last guidelines came out in 2016. Uh, But these new guidelines are also CDC's effort to correct course because of what happened after those previous guidelines. Uh, Opioid prescribing in the U.S. was already on the decline, and the CDC's 2016 recommendations really accelerated that. 
Doctors went from overprescribing to the opposite end of the spectrum, where many became reluctant to give any opioids at all. Uh -huh. And this led to another crisis of untreated pain. It affected all kinds of patients, those with injuries or coming out of surgery with acute pain. It affected patients with chronic pain who suddenly had their prescriptions cut down or stopped altogether. This had some horrible unintended consequences. Uh, some patients even turned to the illegal drug market. Some died by suicide. Mm. Did the CDC acknowledge any of that in these new guidelines? They did. Uh, for years, I mean, doctors and the CDC have said the guidelines were being misread and misapplied, and they were supposed to be voluntary, not rules that were applied to all pain patients. And the new recommendations are trying to make that clear and strike a balance. Uh, I spoke to Dr. Samer Naruz about this. He's the head of the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. You can tell the culture behind the 2016 guideline is just cut down opioids. On the opposite, when you look at this one, you can sense that they are caring now more about patients living in pain, their experience, more than just your goal is to cut, cut, cut down opioids. Now, just to be clear, doctors like Nehru say opioids should not be the go-to option when treating pain. There are many other things we should try first. But for some patients, opioids do make sense, and doctors need to have flexibility. Right, and I want to follow up on what Naruz was saying there, that this is about, uh, this is about the patient. So it, these are new rules for doctors, of course, but what does this practically mean for people uh, who may need these drugs? Yeah, that is still an open question. Uh, hopefully doctors pay attention to these guidelines, but some patients have been waiting a long time for them and they still don't feel reassured. Uh, one of them is Cindy Steinberg. She's with the U.S. Pain Foundation, which is a patient advocacy group. Most people that I know, and I know a lot of people living with chronic pain, have already been taken off their medication. Doctors are incredibly fearful of prescribing at all. So... I don't think this is going to make a major difference. Now, the broader issue here is that the older guidelines influenced other opioid restrictions. There were new state laws, rules by insurers and state medical boards. The CDC says that wasn't supposed to happen and they're now repeatedly emphasizing this in their updated guidelines. Mm -hmm. But we don't know yet if that will translate into new policies that make doctors more comfortable prescribing. And Pierre's Will Stone, thank you. Thank you. A conspiracy theory claiming that liberal activists are stuffing ballot drop boxes with fraudulent votes has been thoroughly and repeatedly debunked. But many Republicans have embraced a film that uses the stylings of an investigative documentary to make the lie seem plausible. And now some are mobilizing around its false claims, raising concerns over voter intimidation in the final days before the midterms. NPR's Shannon Bond reports. In Georgia this summer, a fake wanted poster falsely identified a woman as a so-called ballot mule. In Arizona, voters dropping off their ballots complained about being photographed and filmed, in some cases by people carrying weapons. What we're seeing now is sort of a trend towards policing other people's voting behavior. Emma Steiner is a disinformation analyst at the nonpartisan group Common Cause. The incidents appear inspired by a film, 2,000 Mules, that spins a wild tale of how the 2020 election was supposedly stolen from Donald Trump. The story goes, Democratic groups colluded with paid operatives, who the film calls mules, to cast illegal votes. There's no evidence for any of this. 
But the false claims have taken hold among many Republicans, including Trump himself, who hosted a premiere event for 2000 Mules at Mar-a-Lago. And people are taking up the film's call to action. It's basically an endless template for taking a picture of someone or a video and saying that, oh, actually what they're doing here is criminal. You can trust me on this. And, you know, we need to find out who this person is and report them to the authorities. While 2000 Mules didn't invent the big lie that Trump won the 2020 election, it's given coherent shape to voter fraud claims, says Matthew Sheffield, a former conservative activist who's now a correspondent for a progressive news network. They took all these ingredients uh, uh, and put them into a jello mold and, and served the jello, <laughs> basically. 2000 Mules was directed by right-wing commentator Dinesh D'Souza and relies on data and analysis from a controversial group called True the Vote. Its core claims have been refuted by fact-checkers and rejected by law enforcement. One of the people identified as a mule is suing the film's creators for defamation. And this week, True the Vote's leaders were jailed for contempt of court in a separate matter. True the Vote referred questions about 2000 Mules to D'Souza, who did not respond to a request for comment. But even though the film fails to produce any evidence showing its central claim that people were dropping ballots at multiple drop boxes, Sheffield argues that's beside the point. It is a narrative. You know, it, it, it is creating sentence structure to what had been just scattered feelings. 2000 Mules is the latest in a long line of movies that use the tropes and signifiers of documentaries to gain credibility. In recent years, documentary-style films about the 2020 election, the COVID pandemic, and vaccines have spread conspiracy theories and recycled debunked lies. Jory Craig studies elections at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Documentaries have been used for decades to try to make bad actors and uh, folks who are trying to push conspiracies or push disinformation or push a specific political agenda look more professional, look glamorous. Uh, look like something that you can believe. In 2000 Mules, slick graphics illustrate True the Vote's claims that so-called mules visited multiple drop boxes. But in one case, a map described as Atlanta is actually a stock photo of Moscow. This is not standard practice for filmmakers like Brian Knappenberger, whose latest project is a documentary series about online hoaxes that lead to real-world harms. We do three original sources for anything that looks anything like something we're saying or putting out into the world. And even if we kind of know it's true, but we just can't back it up, we don't we don't do it. But while mainstream documentaries like his aim to bring a true story to a wider audience, 2000 Mules serves a different purpose, giving people who've already bought into the fiction of election fraud a satisfying story and a way to participate. Shannon Bond, NPR News. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. The defense is underway in the trial of five January 6th defendants who are facing the most serious charges yet in connection to the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Today, jurors in the case heard from lawyers for one defendant, a former Army paratrooper named Jessica Watkins. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson is following the trial. Hey, Carrie. Hi, Mary Louise. So who is Jessica Watkins and what did she do on January 6th? She, 
Yeah, she served in the Army for a few years and then went on to work as a firefighter and EMT and then ran a bar in Ohio. In 2019, she founded a small militia group there. Jessica Watkins linked up with the far-right group known as the Oath Keepers, and she entered the Capitol with other Oath Keepers on January 6th. Here is some tape of her that day recorded by a reporter from the public radio show on the media. It has spread like wildfire. The Pence has betrayed us and everybody's marching on the Capitol, all million of us. It's insane. We're about two blocks away from it now, and uh, police are doing nothing. They're not even trying to stop us at this point. Mary Louise, inside the Capitol Police uh, did try to stop those Oath Keepers. The jury heard from an officer who was left bloodied after that push. And prosecutors also pointed out Watkins texted her boyfriend and her mother that night, telling them that she stormed the Capitol. Okay, so if she was texting people that she stormed the Capitol and there's tape of her on the day, there's no dispute that that she was there, that she breached the Capitol. What's the defense here? Well, her lawyer, Jonathan Crisp, told the jury at the start of this case that Watkins wanted to help people, that she wanted to use her medical training at protests. He also says she never felt she fit in, in part because she's a transgender woman and she wanted to try to fit in with those Oath Keepers. That defense got more complicated this week when prosecutors showed the jury a message where Watkins used an anti-gay slur to describe left-leaning protesters. This week I spoke with Elon Musk who led a national study on the transgender population. Meyer's a senior fellow at the Williams Institute at UCLA, and Meyer told me Watkins may have had a hard time in the military and in civilian life, but it's not clear that her legal trouble has anything to do with her being transgender. Meyer says there are lots of things people might do, like volunteer for a transgender group, rather than bust into the Capitol building. The jury also heard testimony from Watkins' fiancé. What is he saying? Her fiancé, Montana Sniff, talked about Watkins going AWOL from the Army in 2003 because he says Watkins was getting hazed to the point where she feared for her life. He told the jury Watkins still wanted to serve people. And that's part of why she started that militia group many years later. He says he didn't go to D.C. on January 6th, and he was very concerned when he heard that she had entered the building because she's a law-abiding person, and he thought that was a stupid idea. Um, Briefly, Carrie, what else are you watching for from the defense case? Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers and a defendant here, has promised to take the witness stand later in the trial. Could happen as early as Friday. His lawyers say most of his big talk before January 6th was just bluster, but we're going to find out what the jury thinks about that pretty soon. All right. And Pierre's justice correspondent, Carrie Johnson. Thank you, Carrie. Happy to be here. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the drive to get rich off a winning lottery ticket has a dark side, say critics, arguing that state-run lotteries such as the Powerball often negatively impact low-income and minority groups. That story is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. 
Tickets to WBR City Space's fall season are on sale featuring notable guests including Jacques Pepin and Bill McKibben. Get details at WBUR.org events. After a beautiful day, we should have mostly clear skies tonight, falling to about 47 degrees. Could have some fog early tomorrow and then sunshine for the bulk of the day. Should be a warm day, breaking into the low 70s. And then for the weekend, Saturday's looking beautiful. Sunny skies could make it to about 70 or 72 degrees. And for Sunday, a few clouds, but sun as well. Highs could be about 74 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Boston Bruins are on the road to play the New York Rangers tonight. Uh, the Bruins are 9-1 and one on the season. The Rangers are 6-3-2, 7.30 start time tonight. Make informed choices on the midterm election ballot questions and other voting decisions next week with the WBUR Voter Guide. The answers and explanations you need are at wbur.org slash voter guide. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, portraits of pride slashed and defaced. The vandalism of an exhibit on Boston Common featuring photographs of 22 LGBTQ leaders days before it closed. What does it feel like to literally put yourself out there and be slashed for who you are? We dive beneath the headlines on Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. As climate change intensifies hurricanes along the coasts, it also brings extreme rainfall to inland communities. A journalism project called the Mississippi River Basin Agriculture and Water Desk has found that annual rainfall is increasing in parts of the basin. Juan Pablo Ramirez-Franco and Eva Tesfai report on how communities are responding. Freeport, Illinois, is a Rust Belt town west of Chicago, and this past summer, the Pecatonica River flooded the city. It's something Lori Thomas and her mother have almost grown accustomed to. Their house has flooded at least 15 times in the past 20 years. But for them, moving is not an option. People have always lived over here, and there's always been the Pecatonica, but lately the floods have been worse, but they've been worse everywhere else too. That's not a reason to kick people out of their homes. Last year, the city of Freeport, with over $3 million from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, launched a program to buy and remove homes along the river and return the land to floodplains. City officials say that the average home on the east side is valued at around $15,000. Homeowners can be offered up to an additional $31,000. Thomas says that's just not enough money for her mother to pick up and start over elsewhere. She and some neighbors would rather take their chances with the river. The lady over there is in a wheelchair. She's been there all her life. These are older people. Where the hell are they going? It's not just Freeport. Our reporters found that parts of the Mississippi River Basin receive up to eight more inches of rain a year than they did five decades ago. It's causing economic strain, hurting quality of life, and forcing people to make hard decisions about whether to stay or leave. Laura Lightbody is with the Pew Charitable Trust's Flood Prepared Communities Initiative. She says development can't keep happening in floodplains. The old way isn't working for today's population 
And so that has resulted in rethinking the engineering solution versus a new look at the role that nature can play. Buyout or not, restoring floodplains will mean totally transforming river communities like Freeport. But for these efforts to succeed, they'll need support and substantial resources. Otherwise, families like Thomas's will continue to opt out altogether. I'm Eva Tesfai, one state over in Atchison County, Missouri. Reagan Griffin makes his way through the tall grasses of what used to be farmland along the Missouri River, another tributary of the Mississippi. He's a corn and soy farmer and is on the local levee board. He stops at a pond and points out what's left of an old levee on the other side of it. That, I'm pretty sure, was the crest of the levee. I think it ran right through here. And then this was a hole that got eaten out through it. During the flood of 2019, water rushed through that hole, drowning the crops. Three years later, the water is still there. It turned into a pond that's now surrounded by grassland. That's because after the area was devastated by three major floods in the span of 30 years, the small farming community decided that something needed to change. It seems like we're getting more extreme examples of flooding, more extreme issues with water. So we need to start looking at this differently. So the Atchison County Levy Board proposed a setback. With the help of the Army Corps of Engineers and other organizations and agencies, the levy was moved, making room for the river to flood. Communities throughout the basin are coming up with creative ideas like this to address flooding, and federal officials are starting to notice the need across the country. You're talking tens or hundreds of billions of dollars to mitigate the effects of climate change, sea level rise, aging infrastructures. Eric Letvin is the Federal Emergency Management Agency's Deputy Assistant Administrator for Mitigation. In 2020, the agency launched a program geared towards funding large locally-led projects that fortify areas before disasters strike. So far, inland Mississippi River communities have received less money from this program than coastal ones. Letman says that's in part because they don't have the staff or resources to apply for the funds. But Pew's Lightbody says communities need to come up with local solutions as well. As she sees it, the federal government just doesn't have enough money. They don't have the resources to fully rebuild communities time and time again. It's not clear how river communities will look a century from now, but most experts agree change is necessary to create a better and safer future. And the time to act is now, instead of waiting for the next flood. For NPR News, I'm Eva Tesfai in Atchison County, Missouri. And I'm Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco in Freeport, Illinois. This story came to us from the Mississippi River Basin Agricultural and Water Desk, an environmental reporting collaborative. The Powerball jackpot has now increased to an estimated $1.5 billion. That's the second biggest prize in Powerball history. However, the research suggests that state-run lotteries prey on low-income people. NPR's Jonathan Franklin has the story. It's time to play America's favorite jackpot game. This is Powerball. Until someone is lucky enough to match all six winning numbers to win the jackpot, Lottery players across the country will continue to spend their dollars in hopes of beating the odds and winning big. But the drive to get rich off a winning ticket has a dark side. Critics argue that lotteries oftentimes negatively impact low-income and minority groups. State lotteries are the most neglected example of systemic racism in the United States than any other issue or problem, I should say, in our country. That's Les Burnell. 
the national director for Stop Predatory Gambling, an advocacy nonprofit organization. He tells NPR that through marketing and advertising, state lotteries have no regulation to their practices that oftentimes affects low-income communities, which are made up of primarily black and brown people. In recent years, massive jackpots for lottery games like Powerball and Mega Millions have become the norm, and lottery officials even adjusted their game rules and ticket prices this year for its players, adding an additional drawing date to build larger prizes and to boost sales. But with the new changes and more drawings weekly, low-income communities and minorities are continuing to become the subject of predatory gambling. Research shows that in 2021 alone, Americans spent nearly $105 billion on lottery tickets, with the average adult spending roughly $320 a year on tickets. In a nationwide investigation by the University of Maryland's Howard Center for Investigative Journalism, researchers found that state lottery retailers are disproportionately grouped in lower-income communities. And in some states, these retailers exist primarily in Black and Latino neighborhoods. What we're talking about are, you know, gambling industry practices that are clearly designed to take advantage of vulnerable or at-risk communities. That's Timothy Fong the co-director of the Gambling Studies Program at the University of California, Los Angeles. Why are you selling a potentially addictive product that we know doesn't generate wealth or income for anybody? He says that to tackle the issue of predatory gambling, government retailers must first address the question of who is responsible for stopping these practices. Whether it's the retailers or the states themselves, someone just needs to take action. Jonathan Franklin, NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com/wilderness. From Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between. Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. From DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple, DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at duckduckgo.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Temperatures are heading downward, 57 degrees now in the Boston area. Clear skies tonight should get down to about the mid-40s. Then for tomorrow, sun's back. Temperatures hike to the low 70s. Saturday and Sunday could edge up to about 74 degrees tops. Sunny on Saturday, sunshine and some clouds around on Sunday. It's 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A group called Vet the Vote is encouraging military veterans to help out as intensifying rhetoric causes a shortage of poll workers across the country. 
it's hard to think that you come back to the United States and you don't have a poll worker because someone's threatening one of those poll workers. And it made me think that, hey, I, I've got no problem dealing with that. This is All Things Considered. Vet the vote coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the leader of the Anti-Defamation League tells us about a meeting he had with other civil rights leaders and Twitter head Elon Musk pressuring Musk to curb misinformation on the platform. As a major battle looms, thousands of Ukrainians are fleeing the port city of Kherson and occupying Russian troops are cracking down on the dissidents who remain. If you have a patriotic tattoo, it's 90% likely you're going to be detained. We'll talk with some of the residents who fled and we'll remember the longtime drummer for the iconic punk rock band, The Dead Kennedys. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The government has rested its case in the seditious conspiracy trial of Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes and four other members of the far-right group. Attorneys for the defendants are now putting on a defense, as NPR's Ryan Lucas reports. The government has wrapped up its case after a month of witness testimony. Prosecutors are seeking to prove that Rhodes and the other defendants conspired to prevent, by use of force if necessary, Joe Biden from taking office. Jurors heard testimony from FBI special agents, U.S. Capitol Police officers, former Oath Keepers, as well as two members of the group who stormed the Capitol and later pleaded guilty to conspiracy. The jury has also seen text messages with inflammatory language about the need to fight and keep Trump in power. Now the defendants will have an opportunity to put on a defense. Rhodes is expected at some point to take the stand and testify on his own behalf. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. In Germany, foreign ministers for the group of seven nations have gathered for two days of talks. As Esme Nicholson reports, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, economic dependency on China, and police brutality in Iran are among the items on the agenda. Speaking at the start of the summit, Germany's foreign minister Annalena Baerbock said the G7 will make sure Ukraine receives the aid it needs to counter Russian attacks on its energy infrastructure. She said, we will not allow the elderly, children, and families to die from hunger or cold over the winter because of the Russian president's brutal tactics. Ministers are also due to discuss the energy crisis, high inflation and supply chain issues. And with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz on his way to Beijing, Baerbock and her colleagues will also discuss how to deal with China's growing political influence and its threats against Taiwan. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid is conceding election defeat. NPR's Daniel Estrin says Benjamin Netanyahu is returning to office just a year after he was unseated. Lapid called Netanyahu and congratulated him on his victory. Lapid's office said he instructed his staff to prepare an organized transition of power. With the final votes counted, Netanyahu's right-wing party and his ultra-Orthodox and far-right allies have clinched a parliamentary majority of 64 seats in the 120-seat parliament. It's a major blow to the Jewish left-wing in Israel. For right-wing Netanyahu, it's a stunning comeback for a man who was already the country's longest-serving prime minister and was chased from power last year amid corruption charges. The first world leader to congratulate Netanyahu was Hungary's autocratic leader, Viktor Orban. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. Stocks closed lower again today on the heels of yesterday's move by the Federal Reserve to again raise short-term interest rates. The Dow dropped 146 points to 32,001. The Nasdaq was down 181 points. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. A $3.7 billion economic development bill is now on Governor Charlie Baker's desk after it passed the House and Senate today. The package does not contain permanent tax cuts the governor wanted. Among the other proposals left out of the measure was one that would have limited how much money Beacon Hill can collect from the estates of some people who had received mass health benefits. Current law allows the state to recover hundreds of thousands of dollars or even the homes left in the estates of certain deceased mass health recipients. Charlie Carr is a disability rights advocate. He's paralyzed from an accident and relies heavily on mass health. He has calculated that when he dies, his estate will owe the state more than a half million dollars, and that will come out of his children's inheritance. There's just no prospect of intergenerational wealth. It's taken by the state, and it's criminal. Carr says there are plans to refile the bill to curb mass health estate recovery next year. Tomorrow is the last day to vote early in person for next week's election, although some communities are limiting the hours or not offering the option. While two weeks of early voting ends tomorrow, in-person absentee voting is available until noon on November 17th for people who qualify. Election day is next Tuesday, November 8th, and the polls will be open from 7 a.m. until 8 p.m. The former head of the Massachusetts State Police Union faces sentencing early next year after he was convicted today in a kickback scheme. A federal jury today convicted Dana Pullman and lobbyist Annie Lynch. Prosecutors say Pullman took money from union lobbyist Ann Lynch in exchange for contracts and diverted thousands of dollars from the union for personal expenses between 2012 and 2018. And classes will resume at Brookline High School tomorrow. Students were evacuated this morning and the building was closed for the remainder of the day after a chemical irritant sent two students and two staff members to the hospital. The injuries are not described as serious. The health department has declared the building safe. In the forecast, starlit skies tonight, chilly again in the mid-40s. Some fog early tomorrow, then sunny and milder, up around 72. Some strong winds tomorrow. For Sunday, uh, Saturday, that is, should have sunshine. Temperatures in the mid-70s. And for Sunday, too, clouds early, sunshine again, creeping up to about 74 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 6.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The spread of misinformation is still a top concern in this final stretch of the 2022 midterm elections. So where does one influential platform, Twitter, now stand on those concerns? This week, seven civil rights leaders got on a conference call with Twitter's new CEO, Elon Musk, to try to find out. He is facing increasing pressure as the company has acknowledged a surge in hate speech on the platform. CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, was on that call with Musk on Tuesday, and he joins me now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So as I understand, Musk was the only Twitter leader on this call What is the top line on what you all heard from him? Well, first of all, just to give you some context, this was members of the Stop Hate for Profit Coalition, a group of civil rights leaders who came together in 2020 after the surge of hate speech, racism, and anti-Semitism on Facebook that was able to wring over a period of months a series of concessions from the company. We've spoken out about YouTube and Twitter in the past. We came together to meet with Elon Musk to understand his vision for the platform 
and share some specific concerns. I think the top line on the meeting was, to be honest with you, as always is the case, you know, words matter, but actions matter much more. And yet what we heard was very encouraging. He listened, he processed, and he responded with some very specific commitments that he then tweeted out later that evening, suggesting to us that he plans on following through. And we should just acknowledge here that most of the world is not on this platform, is not on Twitter. So why is it so important to you and the other members of this coalition to get these assurances, to have these conversations with Elon Musk on how the platform is used moving forward? Well, look, already since it was announced he would be buying the platform, we've seen an uptick in extremist activity, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia. And we know advertisers share our concerns as well. And so we wanted to express our our issues and to hear from him, but not just hear, we'll watch him, will he do it? Putting it in writing on Twitter somewhat binds Elon Musk, I think, to live up to his own words. And he said specific things about not replatforming anyone until there's a clear and transparent process, people who've been kicked off the platform, about maintaining a, a commitment with information, with infrastructure and resources to enforce election disinformation and maintain the integrity of elections. And finally, to adopt and create a content moderation council, including representatives of groups like ours who have faced hateful violence in the past. You mentioned replatforming, so I'd like to ask you about one particular user, former President Donald Trump, who was kicked off of Twitter in 2021, shortly after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, for tweets that violated Twitter's glorification of violence policy. Did the possibility of allowing Trump back on Twitter come up in your conversation? Trump's name was not mentioned. He Actually, I think he, his name was mentioned. We did not ask whether he would be replatformed. But Elon did agree not to allow anyone, which would include President Trump, who was deplatformed for violating Twitter rules or inciting violence back on the platform, regardless of their political stature, until there is a transparent process with clear rules and until after the election results are certified. That struck all of us as an important win. I want to step back here for a moment because, of course, this is not just about Twitter. Misinformation and hate speech is on the rise across our country right now. And you have said, quote, a collapse of our democracy is entirely possible if we do not take the necessary steps to prevent it. Jonathan, what do those steps look like to you? Well, first and foremost, I think social media has been a super spreader of this disinformation hate, to your point, beyond Twitter. We need government intervention, legislative reform, specifically the exemption provided by 230, which has allowed conspiracy theories and incitement and hate to flourish on these platforms. Once and for all, that needs to go away. So Section 230 reform. Number two, I really think we need to look at some of the the bare infrastructure of democracy to make sure that election integrity is maintained, that people have access to the ballot box, regardless of their economic class or their social stature, that's incredibly important as well. And number three, I think we need other you know, reforms in Washington. We have a system which is polarized at a level at the ADL we have not seen in any point in our memory. After 110 years of fighting hate, I'm afraid we're at a precipice that if we don't act now, indeed, it could be too late. That was CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for having me.
Now to a looming battle in southern Ukraine that could change the trajectory of the war. It's a fight that U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said today the Ukrainians could win. It is for the city of Kherson, the first major city taken by Russia in the invasion. Most of its residents have fled. Government offices have been cleared. Banks are closed. Even the officials installed by Moscow have now fled. Russian forces have cut off most communications, making it tough to know precisely what is happening inside. So NPR's Franco Ordonez traveled to the nearby city of Zaporizhia to meet with families who were fleeing. The conditions of the cars underline where they're coming from. Doors peppered with bullet holes, windows shattered from falling shrapnel, lots of plastic and tape. Passengers pour out emotionally wrecked and physically exhausted. I still, I still can't believe that I left there. Victor pulls a red suitcase out of the trunk of a black car. He doesn't care that the clothes inside are the only possessions he and his wife still have left. They made it out. The madness. His wife, Nadia, says it's difficult to comprehend the last few weeks. The constant shelling, the dead bodies, the fear. I never saw such a Gestapo in my life. They executed a whole street. They killed a nine-year-old girl. NPR could not verify her claims. But still shaking, her eyes dart throughout the parking lot as Ukrainian officers check their passports and take photos. She asked that her last name not be used to protect loved ones still in her song. I can't believe I'm here in Ukraine. It will take time to understand and get used to it somehow. A man who asked to be called Artyom volunteers at a shelter in the city of Zaporizhia. It's a shelter for Kherson evacuees like himself. He's worried about his pregnant wife and her family were stuck in her song. Her mother didn't want to leave, so my wife went to speak with her and got stuck there. Artem and his wife talk whenever they can get a signal. She's four months pregnant, and she tells him when the baby kicks. This will be my first child, a girl, Eva. Artem and his wife fled her son in the spring, but she worried about her mother, so she went back. She needs to stay alive. God forbid something happens to her. You know the situation. Someone could fancy her. She stays home as much as she can, but she needs to sell her garden's potatoes and other vegetables at a local street market for money. She tells me, relax, don't worry, I understand, calm down, breathe, I'm fine. Before the war, Kherson was a city of just over 320,000 people. Its exiled deputy mayor, Roman Holovnia, estimates there are only about 50,000 left. He called some collaborators and said others are people who just can't leave. Many are older. Others have few resources. The situation is intense. He says they live in a constant state of fear that Russians will walk into their home, carjack them, or worse. If you have a patriotic tattoo, it's 90 percent likely you're going to be detained. Artyom says he and his wife generally try to keep their conversations light. They worry that Russians are listening in, but it's hard to ignore the shelling. It's scary, but they think it means the Ukrainians are getting closer. <laughs> you can see it on her face when our guys are hitting and the Russians are retreating. He just wants them to hurry up so he can get his wife and their baby to their six-month checkup. And that will be in Ukrainian-held territory. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Zaporizhia, 
Ukraine. Pellegro, the longtime drummer for the iconic punk band Dead Kennedys, has died at the age of 63. His frantic hardcore drumming set the pace for the band's boundary-pushing lyrics and performances. Born Darren Henley in St. Louis, Missouri, Pellegro moved to San Francisco to join the punk music scene. After hearing Dead Kennedys play, he auditioned to be their next drummer. Pellegro brought fresh energy to the band's music, and despite that music's aggressive formula, Pellegro himself was a warm, easygoing person. We don't want people coming down to make trouble. We are pretty anti-violent. Pellegro was also one of the few black punk musicians early on, and he spoke openly about his experiences with racism when the band toured. NPR Music's Lars Gottrich says Pellegro helped set the bar for the hardcore music scene's beat. He had the stamina to blast through these 90-second songs, but he also had soul. I mean, just listen to the song I Spy, which Pellegro wrote. It swings at first. But then just as the song barrels into a surf punk chaos and everything feels like it's going to topple over, Pellegro keeps everything steady. His precision and innovation would become the backbone of American hardcore. D.H. Pellegro was 63 years old. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on Marketplace this evening, a lack of graphite might sound like an obstacle for pencil makers, but batteries used in electric vehicles depend on it too when a graphite shortage threatens manufacturing. Coming up this evening on Marketplace, it starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Newton Country Day, a Sacred Heart school preparing girls grades 5 to 12 to be strong leaders in a global society. Open house November 6th, newtoncountryday.org. Stocks closed lower for fourth day. The Dow dropped nearly a half percent, 146 points, to finish the day at 32,001. S&P gave up just over 1% to finish at 37.20. And the Nasdaq fell one and three quarters percent to end the day at 10,345. Cambridge-based drug maker Moderna says it could have a vaccine for the highly infectious respiratory infection RSV by next year. Moderna says it expects to have the data from its Phase 3 trial by this winter and could launch its vaccine by next fall. RSV is spreading at an unusually high level among children. The virus generally causes mild symptoms, but it can be severe for children and for older people. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Global Arts Live with Pink Martini at Symphony Hall November 5th. Music from across the decades and around the world from your favorite little orchestra. Tickets at globalartslive.org. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org cars.
The online auction for special loan number license Cape and Islands plates raised more than $450,000. Nearly 1,400 people registered to bid. The money goes to support growth in the Cape and Islands year-round economy. Cape and Islands plate number one went for $33,000. In the forecast, starry skies tonight in the mid-40s. For tomorrow, fog, early sunshine, up around 72 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 620. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Japaigo, part of Johns Hopkins and dedicated to saving lives, improving health, and transforming the future of women. Their name is challenging, but so is their work at jhpiego.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The attack last week on Paul Pelosi, husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, is being seen as a warning of rising political violence in this midterm election season. For example, what used to be a quiet, even boring job, being a volunteer poll worker, that now looks stressful in many states. So among the groups stepping up is one called Vet the Vote. With outreach through the Department of Veterans Affairs, the group has recruited 63,000 military veterans to serve as impartial election workers, as NPR's Quill Lawrence reports. There's a high school marching band practicing in Virginia Beach, Virginia, next to a community rec center which doubles as a polling station. Early voting was already underway last week. Yeah, yeah, it was really, really good. With several military bases nearby, the other sound that you hear is jet noise. That's the sound of freedom. That's Ellen Gustafson, the co-founder of Vet the Vote, a campaign to fix the nationwide shortage of poll workers by recruiting veterans and military families. Gustafson is a Navy spouse. She says the military community is used to putting aside personal politics and working together. Military spouses that I follow on Instagram and follow me on Instagram, and there's a lot of stuff that people say that I just wouldn't agree with politically, but I will tell you they are my biggest source of support. This is not my enemy, for God's sake. This is the person who I call when I need someone to pick up my kid. She's got three young kids, and her husband just deployed, so she's not joking. Gustafson says Vet the Vote is a way for veterans to use their experience to keep serving. In this case, their experience at following a whole mess of rules and procedures. You know, the military and voting, <laughs> like when you have way too many people working in one big institution to do their very specific job, that's kind of great for voting and for keeping Navy ships afloat. Veterans have signed up for a lot of reasons. Andrew Turner, an Iraq vet in Michigan, says it was the plot to kidnap his governor, Gretchen Whitmer. It's scary. It's, you know, seeing Governor Whitmer be targeted for kidnapping with that and then with January 6th and everything else, it's been very troubling to me because I'm seeing something that I didn't think would happen here in the U.S. Turner says he's seen political violence overseas and wants to do whatever he can to shore up democracy at home. In Northern California, Donnie Hazeltine agrees. He served as a Marine for 22 years. And I think from someone who actually was in Iraq during uh, Iraqi elections, it's hard to think that you come back to the United States and you don't have a poll worker because someone's threatening one of those poll workers. And it made me think that, hey, I, I've got no problem dealing with that and maybe there's another way I can continue my service and give back to, to my country. 
Jerry Bell served in naval intelligence for 20 years. She's already worked one election in 2020 near her home in Calvert County, Maryland. The election administrator pairs up a Republican with a Democrat. And my partner in the other political party and I kind of looked at each other sideways for about 30 seconds. And then we started processing ballots and it just didn't matter. We just had a job to do. And it really was the most nonpartisan thing I've done since I left the Navy, and that was a pleasure. Some veterans joined the campaign because they themselves have questions about the process. Uh, my name is Will Doyle, and I served from 2002 to 2017. Deployed on Reagan and, and Bush. Those are aircraft carriers he was on, named for Presidents Reagan and George Bush Sr. But Doyle says he never voted for president until he got out of the military. I didn't want to have an opinion one way or the other about the commander-in-chief, the bias if my party that I voted for wasn't elected. I met Doyle back in Virginia Beach, listen for the jet noise. He says he's not totally confident that the election in 2020 was free and fair. I'd like to believe that our democracy is protected and that the rights of the people are protected and our vote, each and every vote is counted, but sometimes you see the media's pointing in other directions. Ellen Gustafson with Vet the Vote welcomes this kind of skeptic. She's confident that when he learns how polling stations are run, he'll reassure himself and others. We have recruited 63,000 veterans and military family members to be poll workers all across this country. There were 12 in my zip code alone that I, that I saw in our database. So when you go to vote, you can trust that that population is there and that they know how to do the right thing. Both Gustafson and Doyle will sit this election out, though. Their polling stations had too many volunteers. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, Virginia Beach. President Biden and China's leader Xi Jinping are supposed to meet in person at the G20 summit in Indonesia this month. But as tensions grow, the two countries' militaries are preparing for the worst, potential conflict with each other. So the U.S. Army is retooling itself in a large and key strategic region, the Indo-Pacific. NPR's Emily Fang reports. Charles Flynn, commanding general of the United States Army Pacific, has been following China closely for a while. He's covered the Indo-Pacific region that encompasses a huge portion of the world from Mongolia all the way to Australia since 2014, with a focus on China. What I have witnessed uh, them doing is increasingly alarming and irresponsible. Specifically, he says, live-fire military drills China conducted around Taiwan earlier this summer. China said it was retaliation for a U.S. government visit led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taipei. But this week, it's General Flynn overseeing military training exercises at a new army center in tropical Hawaii. And these exercises are a big step for an army that hasn't fought much in the Pacific lately. Instead, the focus for the last two decades was Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, for a long time, particularly due to sort of the conveyor belt of uh, providing forces to the Middle East over the last 20 years, we were sending forces from Hawaii and Alaska, tactical forces, back to the training centers in the continental United States. But the time it takes to ship all your equipment back there, the time it takes to move all your soldiers back there, 
you know, just really, it doesn't make sense to do that any longer. Which is why the Army set up a permanent training center on the islands of Hawaii, because now the focus is back on threats in the Pacific, including from China. We are training in the environment and the conditions that more closely replicate where we have to operate and potentially fight. And it's not just the U.S. which is jittery about China and its threats against Taiwan. Thailand, the Philippines, and Indonesia sent infantry units to train with U.S. forces this week. Nine other countries, including Australia and Japan, are in Hawaii observing the American soldiers. Some are planning similar drills or even building their own training centers to work with the U.S. The idea is that by training together, the U.S. and its allies can hopefully deter China and prevent conflict. Emily Fang, NPR News, Oahu, Hawaii. The U.S. has seen a rising wave of domestic extremism, and security experts are warning of potential violence around the midterm elections. You have to imagine that the, the average local county election official isn't walking around with something like the Secret Service or Marshal Service protecting them. They, they don't have any protection at all. And so if an individual sets their sights on one of these targets, there's not a lot stopping them. More today on NPR's daily podcast, Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is WBUR. Stakes are high in the midterm elections. There are key issues and ideas on the ballot. Very active voting has become politicized, as you've heard. Start every day here at WBUR for election news. Listen to 90.9 WBUR again tomorrow. And in the forecast, clear skies overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine's back. Temperatures in the low 70s. Should be a nice weekend. Sunshine on Saturday. Some sunshine on Sunday. Highs in the 70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts. Catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas. In Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. UncommonFeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast.